Please remain standing and open your Bibles to Psalm, the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms and turn to Psalm 123. And we'll be reading together here Psalms 123, 124, and 125. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us now. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surround his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Here ends the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 9. This morning, beloved, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Revelation 9, beginning in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. 
They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Let's pray that the Lord might bless our time of worship through his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, again, we come before you always in desperate need, and we ask by the leading of your Holy Spirit that you would grant me the ability to, to clearly communicate that which is laid out before us this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, all your people will be encouraged to know and to be reminded of the fact that those that are sealed by the Holy Spirit are untouchable. That no one can snatch them out of your hand. But yet between the first and second comings of the Lamb of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there's many types of judgment that you are leashing, unleashing from heaven upon earth. And that while it affects unbelievers, Christians at the same time may suffer death, but we are forever secure, being guaranteed entrance into the glory that awaits us. Bless our time, we pray, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In theology, there is an erroneous concept known as dualism which assumes that good and evil are two separate, equally powerful entities. God representing good, Satan representing evil. And those who hold to a worldview that is dualistic rather than theocentric fail to see God as being truly sovereign over all things, all people. What they see are forces of good and evil fighting it out as they hope and they cheer for good and for God to conquer evil and Satan. Dualistic theology, you see, sets Satan against God in a good versus evil kind of sword fight. That is not the picture, beloved, you want to have in your mind. We will hopefully dismantle that thinking this morning by way of the text. This dualistic type of theology is what one teacher refers to as Star Wars theology, baptized in evangelical arrangements. Satan, beloved, is not God's opponent. Neither in power nor in sovereignty. He is a created being, and he, beloved, is a defeated rebel. Colossians chapter 2 clearly states that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Question, is he or is he not disarmed? The scripture tells us that he is. Now, beloved, as we approach chapter 9 of the Revelation, God's absolute sovereignty over all things is about to be demonstrated, brace yourself, in a very graphic and to some a very surprising way. But this is the text at hand. 
This is the word of God. Now, what we're going to witness here is God using evil to judge evil. That's the picture before us this morning. Now, remember, the book of Revelation is not chronological. It is made up of seven different pictures of the glory of the Lamb, the conquering of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ by way of his death, burial, and resurrection. And we've already seen the second coming of Christ back in chapter 6, have we not? We're going to see the second coming of Christ in judgment a total of seven times. And again, this is apocalyptic literature, which are pictures more like a kaleidoscope than it is a chronology revealing for us the glory of the Lamb, his conquering over sin and death, and how he rules from heaven now in everything that goes on in the earth between the first and second comings of Christ. And what the judgment of Christ on earth, temporal judgment, how it affects an unbelieving world. All the while knowing that Christians are being martyred as well. The focus or the picture in view this morning is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ's temporal judgment of a certain group of unbelievers on this earth between the first and second comings of Christ. It's very graphic. And you can rest assured, beloved, and praise God that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. God is judging evil with evil. So the biblical reality is that Satan is ultimately, beloved, the servant of God. Whether we like that or not, he is the servant of God. Therefore, everything that he does, everything that the evil one does, demons, everything that they do, is to exclusively serve the very purposes of Almighty God. Satan is a created being. Satan is no threat to Jesus Christ whatsoever. He is no threat to the sovereignty of God. Amen? So what we see depicted this morning are Satan and his minions being used as direct tools of judgment in the hand of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are in the midst of seven trumpet judgment blasts. Trumpets of warning. Four blasts have sounded, there are three left, and we know that the three that are left are woe trumpets. In other words, woe, 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 what's about to happen is really bad. We left off with an eagle flying in the midst of heaven, announcing three woes. Notice chapter 18, verse 13, John looked and he heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that are the three angels that they are about to blow. Now, an eagle represents the strongest of birds, is symbolic of the strongest of birds, and is sometimes a symbol of vengeance in the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, verse 28, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. The first four trumpets that were blown affected areas that support human life on the earth. The last three are woes that come upon those, beloved, who, this phrase, dwell upon the earth. 
is a phrase that refers to those who are in rebellion against God, earth dwellers. But you say, well, we're Christians and we dwell on the earth. Yes, however, we're referred to as his kingdom and we are referred to as his priests. We are citizens of heaven, members of the household of faith, regardless of where we dwell. Are you with me, beloved? Now, trumpet number five is the first of the woe trumpets. It's not directed against nature, but against rebellious humanity between the first and the second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the judgments that have been revealed thus far, remember the four horsemen representing war, there's going to be war between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Jesus said there will be wars, there'll be rumors of wars, these are not the end of all things. These are but the beginning. There'll be bloodshed, men murdering men. There'll be famine. There's been famine between the first and second comings of Christ. There's pestilence. There will continue to be pestilence between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what affects the world system. That's what affects and judges Babylon as we know it. But now what we see is a judgment set upon unbelievers. And John goes on to describe in very graphic imagery the fifth of seven trumpet judgments. I want you to notice three things as outlined in your bulletin this morning. Number one, the place of demonic affliction. Secondly, the purpose of demonic affliction. And then the grotesque portrayal of this demonic affliction. Notice first the place, verses one through three. Where do these demonic forces come from? That's the question. Verse one, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. First question, who is the star fallen from heaven to earth that is given a key to the bottomless pit? Now, considering all that we've learned in our studies of apocalyptic literature thus far, we know that the star is not literal. Remember, in apocalyptic literature, the genre of literature that's being conveyed here is this principle, wherever possible, interpret it symbolically. This star fallen from heaven is not some kind of meteor, it's not a comet, but rather it's a being who holds a symbolic key, and this key opens the pit that releases this particular locust plague. Now, having a key in Revelation, as you know, stands for authority, stands for power. Notice the one who holds the key. Notice the masculine pronoun, he. He, this star. This star is a he. So who is the he that is being represented as the star? Who's the one that's been granted this authority? Well, before we get to that, we must remember that back in chapter one of the Revelation, it was Jesus who said of himself, I have the keys of death and Hades. Declaring that he alone possesses power, he alone possesses the authority and the control over death and Hades, i.e. the abyss, i.e. the bottomless pit. So this star now is given a key, which means that he's allowed a certain level of authority. Granted by who? Jesus Christ, who holds the keys. 
granted here the ability to open the shaft of the bottomless pit, thereby revealing that this creature has characteristics of will and intellect. Now, what does John witness? Notice. When the trumpet blew, I saw a star fallen from heaven. In other words, having already fallen. Now, Jesus uses very similar language back in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When we get to Revelation chapter 12, again, Revelation not being chronological, we see the birth of Christ depicted in chapter 12, along with these words, Satan, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, this star, beloved, in Revelation 9, most likely is referring to Satan himself, who, notice verse 11, they, the demons, have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And as we go on to read, that's Satan himself. Now, this star most likely is Satan, or this star could also be another messenger, another angel, being a good angel, perhaps, another ministering agent of God, not unlike, notice, chapter 8, verse 10. When the third angel blew his trumpet, a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And we saw that as judgment upon fresh water upon the earth, affecting one-third of the earth, not all the earth. Now, the key that he holds is to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Also translated, the shaft that leads to the bottomless pit. And again, this is a, a synonym for the abyss. The place known as the abyss, beloved, is what's known as the very abode of Satan and his demons. Remember 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. God did not spare angels. Again, God did not spare angels when they sinned. These are the fallen angels but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And the word translated hell there is a word that means the deepest abyss of Hades, the depth of that shaft. Jude also speaks of fallen angels in similar terms, Jude 6. Angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, this pit has been referred to as the dark and doleful abode of the wicked. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, the words of Isaiah, he spoke of punishment that shall come upon the angelic hosts of heaven that rebelled along with Lucifer, along with the fallout of earth dwellers who in like manner are rebels against God. And this is what he said. Isaiah 24, 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison and after many days will be punished. Now, all of that, and there's more text that we could cite, but for the sake of time, all of that helps to shed light on a passage in the Gospel of Luke. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he entered the country of the Gadarenes, You remember the scene? He confronts a man running out of his mind, demon-possessed, running naked, cutting himself among the tombs. 
Christ calls out and he asks, Luke 8, verse 30, what is your name? And the demons answer through the man, and he said, legion. Legion means 6,000. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him, the demons, begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. Notice two things. First of all, these demons acknowledge the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. They begged him not to command, because whatever Jesus commands, that's what's going to happen. Come on, somebody. (laughs) And secondly, they fear this place known as the abyss. So these demons then ask permission to enter, instead of the abyss, a herd of swine, rather than incarceration into this place. And then a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. They begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. You know the rest of the story. The herd jumps off the cliff and commits suicide. Amen? (laughs) All of these passages combined here reveal for us that this bottomless pit to which this star was given the key harbors some of the most vicious fallen creatures that followed Lucifer in his rebellion. So it must be a horrifying place. It must be a terrifying place if demons dread going there. This is what's otherwise known as hell. Before the final arrival of the lake of fire, which will occur at the second coming, where death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, in chapter 11, and when we get to chapter 17 of Revelation, this is the place that the beast comes out of. The very place, beloved, that, okay, don't miss this, the very place that Satan is now confined for a thousand years. Don't change that channel. Stick with me. Look at Revelation 20. Again, Revelation not being chronological in chapter 20 gives us a picture of the consequence of Christ's victory over sin and death. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, here then is where people get confused. They ask, how on earth can Satan have access to the keys in chapter 9 to this bottomless pit if he is indeed the star fallen from heaven and then another angel has the keys to the bottomless pit in chapter 20 that actually binds and locks Satan there in the first place? Well, may we not forget, the reality of the whole matter is that it is Jesus alone who holds these keys. Revelation 1.17, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive for how long? (laughs) Forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So the imagery then of demons coming out of this pit, the abyss, in chapter 9, and being locked there in chapter 20 are both images. Now remember, apocalyptic literature is imagery. It's a picture book. In a recapitulation format, telling us the same story over and again. 
the victory of Christ over sin and death, what he conquered, and future judgment that is come, that is to come rather, that is final. That's why you see Jesus coming like seven times in the Revelation. Now, both of those images, chapter 20 and chapter 9, are linked to Christ's sovereignty over death, over Hades, over this bottomless pit, who is the sole authority, who holds these keys and delegates as he himself wills. Are you with me? Some of you say, absolutely not. Okay, I understand. Just hold on. Much of what we've been taught throughout our Christian lives presses all of this imagery to the last seven years of the end of all history, beloved. This book was written to encourage the Asia Minor churches why they were suffering persecution and what was going on behind the veil of the heavenlies, you see. That's what apocalyptic is. It's an unveiling. It's not a hiding. It's not a magical code that we have to unlock that presses all of this to seven years just before the final return of Christ. This book was never meant to mean something to us that it did not mean to them. Same with Romans. Same with 1 Thessalonians. Same with 1 Corinthians. Same with every book of the Bible. So there in chapter 20, we say that Satan is bound for a thousand years at the resurrection of Christ. Now, a thousand years, a thousand isn't any more literal than seven is, which seven is used throughout this book. It's symbolic for what? Completeness. A thousand simply means a long period of time compared to, say, ten days. We read in chapter two, which means a short period of time. Now, some people refuse to believe that Satan is bound because they forget what it is he's bound from. And we just read it. What's he bound from? Deceiving the nations. See, prior to the coming of Christ, beloved, the nations remained under the dark deception of Satan. But the darkness that the nations were under during the period of the Old Covenant stands in vivid, and I do mean vivid, contrast to the light that has been shown among the nations by way of the gospel. Keys to the kingdom. Hand it over to Peter. Hand it over to the apostles. Confirming the power and confirming the authority with which Christ commissioned his disciples when he said prior to his ascension, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, Jesus provides for us in the apocalypse the image of keys which he holds as being given to an angel coming down from heaven in chapter 20, which provides a vision of locking the pit and binding Satan there from having power over the nations. And again, Revelation is not chronological. So that's one picture given to us. Now, some will say at this point, okay, but how can he possibly be bound with all the evil in the world? You were thinking that, amen? Good. That's a great question. Well, think about this. Man's depravity... Man's inner depravity, his sin nature, is no less prevalent whether Satan is bound or loosed. We have enough evil in and of ourselves in our Adamic nature. The nature that we share given to us by Adam. So man, if he's left to himself, in his depravity, Romans tells us that he what? He hates God. 
He suppresses the truth of God that's made evident through creation alone, and he suppresses that truth in his unrighteousness, and he begins to worship everything but the one true God. Therefore, the consequence is that God turns him over to envy, to murder, to strife, to deceit, and eventually turns him over to a depraved mind. The judgment that we see portrayed for us this morning are those people in Romans 1 who are turned over to themselves. And then as a result of man's wickedness within himself, God provides for us an image of keys, which he holds, given to that star fallen from heaven in chapter 9, who's given the ability to unlock that pit. And as a consequence to man's evil, as a consequence to man's depravity, he judges their unbelief. You get the picture? So where demons are let out here of this pit is for God's greater purposes. They're far beyond our finite imaginations. They're allowed out of confinement in order to inflict punishment, which actually heightens evil. All of which occurs between the first and the second comings of Christ. Notice now, He's given these keys, verse 2, when he opens the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from that shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Apocalyptic imagery once again. So this picture is the exact opposite. This is the antithesis of the smoke of the incense of chapter 8 that we saw rising to the nostrils of God, which were representative of the prayers of the saints. This smoke is not a sweet-smelling aroma. This is the stench that rises from the belly of hell itself. Be thankful you're sealed. Be so thankful that God came to you in your depravity. Be so thankful that he awakened you out of your deadness. Be so thankful that he gave you eyes to see, that he gave you ears to hear. Be so thankful that he took out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Be so thankful that you added nothing to your salvation. It is all a grace gift. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Be thankful. In the sun, in the air, we're darkened with the smoke from the shaft. This is the smoke that would come out of a smelting furnace, a furnace or a kiln used to purify metals bellowing out. Smoke that symbolizes here blinding confusion, choking unbelievers off, smothering them from the truth, being judged in their depravity, being turned over to what they are in and of themselves outside of the grace of God. Now you ask, well, aren't people saved in this as well? Yes, but the picture being provided for us, beloved, are those who will never come to saving faith. This is a judgment being poured out upon them temporarily now. Temporal judgment. They're turned over to lies. They're turned over to false doctrine. They're turned over to perversity. Smoke, as you know, is often uh, provides the concept of judgment all throughout the book of Revelation. We see it in chapter 14, chapter 18, chapter 19. And may we not forget the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 19, Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You'll never face this. 
because of the lamb. So judgment like this, it was what's in view here in Revelation. Verse three, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of a scorpion on the earth. Literally, this reads, authority was given to them. Where does that authority come from? God. It comes from the Lamb of God. All authority, all power is in the hand of the Lamb of God. So the visionary form given to us is that a locust plague has a power that is very scorpion-like. So what's in view here, before we get to the scorpion thing, is not a literal locust plague because Proverbs 30, 27 tells us that locusts have no king. Yet they all march in rank. (laughs) These are demons released from the abyss. They have a king and he's revealed in verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. He's the angel of what? The bottomless pit. So the purpose of this demonic force is what's in view next. Notice verses four through six. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were, next word, allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So here then, the purpose of this demonic force is to torment not not Earth's vegetation. We've already seen that judgment. God only allowed a third of it or a quarter of it. In other words, it's partial judgment until he comes. They were told or they were commanded here not to harm certain parts of the earth. They were not permitted to devour earth's vegetation. But they were told what to harm. People. People who are not sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, you're in Christ. You have the seal of God on your forehead. The Bible says, as we read in earlier weeks, you have the name of the Father, the name of the Lamb, and the name of the new city of God. New heaven and new earth. Now, do you see that written on my forehead? Do you see it when you look in the mirror? No, that is symbolic terminology. He sees it because he put it there. You're stamped. The name of God. Now, those who dwell on the earth don't have that mark. Otherwise known as the people married to the world system, married to Babylon, who refuse who refuse and refuse to surrender themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's God here who prescribes the limitations to the torment of these demons, of which the star fallen from heaven was permitted now and again to hold the keys and release the demonic force. Now, you think about history between the first and second comings of Christ. You know, Evil seems to ebb and flow. You look at the Holocaust. Holocaust. You think of the work of Stalin. Okay? You, You see evil manifest itself in such deep, depraved ways that we don't see every single day. But we see almost this swarm of evil upon an unbelieving world. 
So in every circumstance, Satan and his minions serve God and his greater purposes. Now, beloved, demons do not roam freely. Satan and demons do not roam willfully as they please. They do not. They cannot. They themselves are instruments of God's wrath being utilized as he wills. That's the picture for us here this morning. Evil is no threat to the Lord Jesus Christ whatsoever. Evil is his servant. And the evil one is his servant. Demons are his servant. They are defeated, dismantled of their power. So why then does John liken these demon uh, creatures to locusts? Well, if you ever witness a full, literal locust plague, you'll never ask that question again. They devastate anything in their way. I was watching a video of a locust plague. Um, I don't, it might have been in Australia. There's this family in a car taking this picture, and they, you see this locust swarm coming. And it comes up over the car. It's actually this darkness in the sky, and it lands on the car, and all these kids start screaming. It's a, lo- a literal, a real locust plague. We don't have to go back but to Exodus to see the devastation of a locust plague. Moses stretched out his, his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land. All that day and all that night when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. That's a literal locust plague. Now, there are locust plagues reported as being four miles long, a hundred feet deep. (laughs) Ooh, imagine. But all throughout scripture, we read of the destructive powers of a locust plague. Once it begins, it's unstoppable. All that's left in their wake is utter destruction. Joel chapter 1 verse 2, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust is eaten. Utter devastation. So the destruction then of these demons is intended for not you in Christ, sealed by the Holy Ghost, but for the enemies of Christ, not marked by God, but rather marked by the beast. Just as you have a mark being in Christ, sealed, so too those that will not come to faith are marked with the mark of the beast. There's no reason to read into the text that that's some literal mark. I know we've been taught that that is a future uh, microchip or something like that. We have to stick to the text that takes us back to the Old Testament. That's what apocalyptic is all about. Interpreting scripture with scripture. Now, there's somewhat of a double irony here for those unbelieving people in that they're being judged by the one they worship. God is judging them by the hand of demonic force Because they worship demons. Now, anyone who's not in Christ, Jesus said your father is who? The devil. Anyone who's in Christ, their father is almighty God. By way of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. 
So they're marked, and that's the picture for us here. This is a picture of judgment this morning. God's people protected, unbelievers devoured. Now, for you, beloved, this is a representation, those sealed of the 144,000 that we look back in chapter 7. The 144,000 sealed of God, a picture of the sons of Israel, which is a picture of his church, and all those who follow the lamb, they cannot be touched by this swarm. You'll never be touched by this swarm. You cannot be demonized. You can't be possessed by a demon if you're in Christ because you're already possessed by the Holy Spirit. He possesses you. He owns you. He indwells you. He lives in you. He paid for you by the blood of the lamb. Amen. He inflicts judgment upon those who are not in Christ as a precursor to what they will face in the end. Are you telling me that no one's going to come to faith in Christ? Well, of course they are. This is a picture, again, of those that will not. That's the picture in view. So the purpose of this demonic activity is to force what? This is to serve as a wake-up call that men might repent from their evil and God-forsaking ways, beloved. And we're going to see later, as we conclude this morning, how this group of people responds to this torment. Notice verse 5. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. Now here again, we have a picture, and behind each one of these pictures is indeed a reality. Why five months, first of all? Well, first off, the life cycle of a locust is five months. It also corresponds to the dry season, spring through late summer, that a locust plague or a locust invasion is most probable. Okay, so there's the literal sense of five months. Spiritually speaking, and that's how this is to be interpreted, it's interesting that the number seven, once again, as we see it time and time again, is the number that stands for completeness. Five, of course, being less than seven, shows us the limitation of the plague. It's not complete. In other words, it's not being permitted to run its course in the lives of those who are being attacked. Now, many times when the agony of conscience runs its course, when it's worked out properly in the life of an individual, they finally recognize their sin by the grace of God and they turn to who? The Lord Jesus Christ. But what we see here are torments of conscience that are not permitted to run their course. This is the judgment of God. They're decisively limited. So their agony, their anxiety, and their anger towards God, it doesn't end to the point of repentance. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, great preacher as he was, was a medical doctor before he went into preaching. The great pastor of uh, Westminster in uh, London, Westminster Chapel, he said this. He goes, that a group of secular psychiatrists have determined that 90% of those that are brought into mental institutions are there in attempt to escape a guilty conscience for which they can find no escape. Judgment. It's interesting to hear interviews of the rich and famous You often hear them say, you know, with all that I've attained and everything that I've accomplished, I haven't found 
peace. I'm not content. So the locust's purpose here is not to kill. We'll see that in the next woe trumpet. It's not to kill, but it's to sting like a scorpion. And by the way, a scorpion sting rarely brings death, beloved. But the pain is excruciating. Never been struck by a scorpion. Never want to be struck by a scorpion. But what I hear, it's excruciating pain. So here they are to inflict great pain, and they are the ones when the door of the bottomless pit is unlocked, they emerge out of the great abyss. And, verse 6, in those days people will seek death. They will not find it. They'll long to die, but death will flee from them. Here again is another picture with a profound, profound reality behind it. They want to escape the screaming torment of conscience and they want nothing to do with God at the same time and want to escape into death. But the problem is they can't find it. Here we have spiritual, psychological suffering of the unbeliever that produces a desire for death and an unwillingness to commit suicide. I know people like this. I know many people like this. It's a sad, sad condition. Keep preaching the gospel to them. I don't know what God may do. So the problem is that to end it here doesn't end it. Because if you do end it, it will only increase the intensity of judgment and torment even more, which is suffering here in this great abyss to later be cast in the lake of fire. So what a contrast, beloved. What a contrast to the words of the Apostle Paul who wanted to depart to be with the Lord. Now, there's many of you, many, me included, as Christians who say, Lord, just take me out, would you? <laughs> right? But our taking out is a whole other reason why we want to be taken out. Paul said, it's better for you. It's, I would rather depart and be with the Lord, but it's better for you, church, that I stay. It's for your benefit that I stay and minister. I'd rather go be with the Lord. So to leave here by way of death for those who do not have the seal on their foreheads is to escape temporal torture here, but to enter into an intensified eternal state of torment. There's no escape from the earthly temporal demonic judgment of the Lamb outside of Jesus Christ. He's the only way of escape. But they don't want him. Now, any kinds of seeming escape only leads to greater and more horrifying torment. They're turned over to a debased mind. Romans 1, in contrast to you, in contrast to you, in contrast to those of us who are in Christ, who have the peace of God which surpasses all what? Understanding. And what does it guard? Our hearts and our minds. You're guarded, you're sealed. You're protected. Notice now, final point, the portrayal of demonic affliction, verses 7 to 12. Now, in appearance, again, this is an apocalyptic vision. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads are what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So now up to this point, we've learned of the place and we've learned of the purpose of demonic plague here. 
John goes on to describe them with very dominant, actually grotesque features. Notice the word like is used eight times in four verses, expressing John's inability to describe exactly what he has seen. But again, it takes him back to Old Testament imagery, doesn't it? The portrayal of these verses is based on Joel chapter 1, Joel chapter 2, which describes a locust plague that devastates Israel, modeled no doubt from the locust plague of Egypt back in Exodus. So any attempt, beloved, to ignore Old Testament imagery and press into this a picture of 21st century warfare, such as Apache helicopters or Cobra helicopters, is a great hermeneutical mistake. And I do not say that sarcastically. It's a hermeneutical flaw. These locusts, they march forth. This is the picture. Like a great army, they command respect, having something like golden crowns on their heads, seeming to have been allowed great authority. They have faces that portray them as being very wise. Human faces, that's wisdom. Hair that resembles the hair of a woman. Now, this could be one of two things. This could be hair on on the legs and the body of a literal locust that emphasizes the speed in which they carry out their mission. Or it could be a portrayal of women in their attractiveness or seductiveness if that's what the womanly features here are to portray. Now, it's a grotesque picture that's being painted for us. And women's beauty, then, would show us, if that's what it is, that there's an attraction to the dark side. I mean, how does Satan and demons operate? By way of lies. They appear as an angel of light. So they attract you in, but they have teeth like a lion to devour. Satan roams about like a lion, seeking whom he may what? Devour. Therefore, as Christians, we're only called to do one thing. Stand and resist him. That's it. Because you're sealed. There's no calling them out or casting demons out or, you know, saying I bind you in the name of Jesus and I cast you out. There's none of that. Stand. Resist. They have breastplates, notice, which shows their invincibility. No one that is not sealed can withstand them. So the exterior picture of these locust-like creatures resembles armor. There's no striking back for those that aren't sealed. But we have the armor of God. So the noise, of their, the noise of their wings is like many chariots. Joel chapter 2 verse 4 says, like war horses they run, depicting the, the, the battle that fills the unbelieving mind, the battle that fills the unbelieving soul, unbearable torment, fear, and anxiety, and even an increased hatred of God. So this is an army, picture of an army that marches in arrogant pride, This is an army that pronounces heretical doctrines of Christianity, naming the name of Christ, saying, follow us, we have the spiritual answers. You know, they mock their narrow-mindedness of true biblical Christianity. And they have tails that sting like scorpions, doesn't kill. So John again repeats what he wrote in verse 5, stressing the severity of the attack. It's limited and agonizing. Hurt people for five months. So the locust plague of the fifth trumpet symbolizes the torment that swarms the minds and the souls of those who dwell upon the earth. Unbelievers. One commentator said it like this. These are a people who do not have Christ on their thoughts and their lives. 
So therefore, those who do have Christ, the pain of the sting will not and cannot touch you. Notice finally, verse 11, not finally, but almost finally. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon, and those two words literally mean destruction and destroyer. Now, Jesus said Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and how does he murder? With lies. He murders by way of lies. Deception. In the day that you eat of it, God said to Eve, you will surely die. Satan comes and he says, you won't surely die. That's a lie. As a matter of fact, the day that you eat of it, God knows and he fears that you will become like him. Another lie. Remember then that the key was given to the star fallen from heaven, from Christ himself who holds the keys. Therefore, any and all power and all ability, any ability that Satan or demons have is a delegated ability for the greater purposes of God in his sovereign framework, in his sovereign will. Satan is no threat, beloved, to God whatsoever. He is no threat to the resurrected Lamb of God who rules from his throne. As we saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5, he rules alone. This is just a picture of God pulling back his hand of restraint, beloved. Listen to the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Quote, Does it not seem as though someone has opened the bottomless pit? Day after day, we see in the newspaper horrible, foul things as if every restraint has gone and vileness and crime are abroad throughout the whole world. Now, this is what we sometimes speak of when we say that at certain periods of history, it has been exactly as if hell had been let loose, as if every restraint of God were withheld and the devil and his forces were allowed to have free play among men and women in the world. I repeat that sometimes this is allowed and almost caused by God. He does not cause the sin, but he allows it to go un restrained in order that men and women might be punished and come to their what? Their senses. 9-11, you know, as I said a couple weeks ago, how many people ran in, unbelievers ran into the churches after 9-11, beloved? Only to disappear back into Babylon as the dust settled. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. But even so, beloved, in spite of such judgment of God upon an unbelieving world, notice verse 20 and 21 very quickly. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues, okay, there's another plague coming that actually kills, did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons. And isn't it interesting, the very ones that are attacking them are the very ones that they worship. They did not give up idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, related to murder is hate and hostility, their sorceries, that's the word pharmakia, from where we get the word pharmacy, meaning drug use, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. Bottom line, this is a picture of the non-elect who do not repent. In beings that they did not repent, they show up again in Revelation 21, verse 8, that reads, but as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable and for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, there that is again, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So what is it, beloved? What is the woe of the trif, the fifth rather judgment 
of God telling us this morning? Well, it's saying this. There's a judgment of God upon certain unbelievers that does not lead to repentance. That's exactly what's depicted here. And as powerful, beloved, and as terrifying of a picture as this, as this is for us, it is no more terrifying that what is, than what is going on in the world all around us. You turn on the news any day. The, rev, the reality of Revelation 9 is being played out now. The enemies of God who are in opposition to God are being judged by God and being confirmed in their enmity and hostility against God. And at best, they make him out to be who they want him to be. Rather than falling down and worshiping the one in whose image they're made, they recreate him and make him in their own image. So we conclude that yes, most certainly, Jesus uses evil to judge evil. And in the process, beloved, he's exhausting evil. In the process, he is exhausting evil. He's exhausting rebellion to the ultimate end, his glorious return. Now, as children of God, as I conclude, as children of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can back off from this depiction of judgment and we can say, what an extraordinary blessing it is to be sealed by the name of God, by the Lamb of God, and by the new city of God. What an extraordinary blessing it is to be members of the household of faith, to be referred to as his kingdom, to be referred to as his priesthood, to be referred to as the elect of God, none of which, by the way, is of our own doing, beloved. You are saved by grace alone. Alone. How can we know we're elect, you might ask? By looking to Jesus Christ. By seeing him as he is, entrusting ourselves to him, entrusting ourselves to him as Lord, as Savior. For he is Lord. You don't make him Lord, he is Lord. You just submit to him as Lord. That's how you know. Knowing that within you dwells the Holy Spirit, which gives you an interest for the things of God, which gives you a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can sing this morning as we did, I woke the dudgeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's why we can sing that. Because you're sealed. Because you're saved. Now understand this. The greatest picture of God's sovereignty over evil, you might think, is Revelation 9. But it's not Revelation 9. The greatest picture of God using evil to judge evil is the cross of Calvary for which Jesus Christ was crucified for you. That's the greatest picture of God using evil against evil. Behind Judas Iscariot, who was in that upper room, and Peter said, who is it, Lord? The one in whom I take the bread and dip in the sop and give it to him. When he gave it to Judas, the scripture says in John 13 that Satan entered him and Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Who is he speaking to? Satan. That was a command. Do it. So behind Judas Iscariot, 
behind the corrupt religious leaders of the day, behind Pontius Pilate, behind the evil influence of Satan and the demons over those men, along with our sin, throw that in there as well, was God. Because as Isaiah said, yet it was the will of Yahweh, of the Lord to crush the son He, the Father, has put him, the Son, to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. That's the greatest manifestation of God using evil against evil, beloved, to save you and to seal you. The very same earth that Jesus cursed when he judged it back in Genesis 3, he became immersed in that earth. He himself became a curse in order to save and to seal his elect. Providing you, providing us, the privilege and the liberty together to partake of his broken body and his shed blood represented at the table. And that's what we're prepared to do now. Remembering the new covenant promises of God in Christ Jesus, who bore evil, who bore wrath, the wrath of the Father upon himself for all who have and will place faith in Jesus Christ alone. They are sealed and they are made untouchable. Rejoice, beloved. Let's bow in prayer as I ask the men to come forward to prepare to hand out the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this very sobering text. We thank you for the revelatory truth of your sovereign rule, of your sovereign reign over all things, including evil, over all things, including the father of lies, that he does not, nor can he do anything outside of your sovereign will for your sovereign purpose, which is far beyond our finite imaginations. So therefore, Lord, we ask that you'll grant us the grace and the ability to embrace these things by faith the things that the authoritative word of you, the almighty God, our Lord, our Savior, has declared for us through scripture. Bless your people this morning and may the table that represents the broken body and shed blood of the lamb, our Savior, be magnified within us in appreciation for what you have done for those that are yours. In Christ's name, amen.